welcome to Digital Health Unplugged, continuing to bring you all of your healthcare IT news from our makeshift offices while the lockdown continues. As always, I'm Andrea Downey, Senior Reporter for Digital Health, and joining me today are Hannah Crouch, Digital Health Editor. Hi. And John Hoetzma, Digital Health Editor-in-Chief. Hi there. So Digital Health is now into our sixth week of working from home, which has taken quite some getting used to. It still feels very odd only seeing our colleagues and also friends and family through Zoom meetings and video chats and you know other video options. But we all know the importance of doing our bit in this crisis. So staying home seems like a very small contribution compared to what others are going through. This is going to be the new normal for a while. So we just have to find a way to cope as best we can. Uh, Hannah and John, how are you coping with lockdown? And have you got any life tips for our listeners? Um, I guess... For me, it's sort of like you said, kind of keeping in contact with as much with friends and family and colleagues as well. Um, I also find in going out for exercise, your sort of allotted once a day piece of exercise has really helped. It's good for mental health and kind of good to keep your sort of your body kind of active and everything while you're kind of cooped up at home. And also definitely making sure you've got enough subscriptions. So Netflix, Disney Plus, so you've got plenty of content. Yeah, I'm on everything now. Yeah, I've watched a lot of Disney movies. Um, I think my top recommendations are try and avoid having your 10-year-old son spend all day on Fortnite would probably be my top number one tip. Um, they do go a bit insane after a while. Um, and um, I, I've just completely embraced Zoom for everything. I'm now even doing Zoom yoga classes, which um, I'm shocked by. Yeah? Um, and zoom board games with family members um not kind of in the same household that's another top tip that's well worth a try yeah we've been doing that in uh, my friendship group actually just the occasional zoom meeting we've got a dinner party on friday which could, could go either way it could could be a disaster but it should be quite fun um but yeah i think we're quite lucky to be able to use all of that um but then I, there's also a happy side effect for me i guess um is that it's forced me to chill out a bit more because um, I'm normally someone that's really busy and really oversubscribed to everything. And I normally get to Monday sometimes and I'm quite tired um, from not having a chilled weekend. Whereas now I'm doing loads of reading and I've taken up drawing and painting again, which I haven't actually done for years. So it's been quite nice. But I think I've decided I like chilling out when I want to chill out. I don't like forced chilling out. <laughs> so <laughs> that's taken some time to get used to. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I would also agree with like, I'm keeping a routine and I'm exercising as much as possible and going for my government mandated walks, which is definitely helping. I think my other tip, top tip, which is um, tip, top tip, um, is that you can go a bit crazy reading about COVID-19 coverage. Um, obviously not through oh, yeah. digital health coverage, but after a while, it does drive you a bit mad um, just reading about COVID-19 endlessly. So Taking a break from COVID-19 coverage would be my other top tip. Yeah, it's a good idea. I'm trying to minimise screen time outside of work as much as possible because I was just watching loads of mindless telly and I would just sit and watch the news and I was just getting a bit anxious. So. I thought your kind of like productivity had fallen off a bit, Andrew. Now I know why. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just at my screen, like moving my mouse every now and then. I'm not actually doing anything. <laughs> well, as all of our regular listeners will know, our news team debriefs usually look into our biggest headlines of the month and what they mean for the health IT sector. Uh, but as much as we have tried to bring you other news, unsurprisingly, the biggest news stories have been about coronavirus. Since we have covered the NHS's and suppliers' response to the outbreak in our coronavirus special and also last month's news team debrief, 
we thought we would do something a little bit different this time. Rather than focusing on our top red stories, we're going to be looking at the emerging themes around COVID-19, and that's likely to be the case until things settle down. So today we're going to be taking a look at patient-facing solutions and technology. There has been so much going on in this sphere, especially with the development of contact tracing apps and coronavirus apps in general. But there's also been some other really positive developments as well. NHSX is working with tech firms to help care residents, uh, care home residents, sorry, and patients stay connected with their loved ones while we're all on lockdown, which is a really nice news story given we are in a situation that feels like we're having nothing but relentless bad news. So as part of that, Facebook is providing more than 2,000 of its portal video calling devices to hospitals, care homes, hospices, and other care settings, uh, all for free. Um, but let's talk about the apps first before we get into that one. It feels like a new app is being developed every single day. NHSX is working on a contact tracing app, which is currently being trialled in the north of England. Apple and Google have just joined forces to create contact tracing technology, which will help uh, app developers. King's College London have launched one, and we're getting daily updates from a range of other suppliers and companies who are developing similar apps. Uh, so team, what do we think about the development of so many different apps? Um, I think it's there's been a lot of work obviously to help to ensure that people can get access to the healthcare they need by, via digital tools. And like you said, there's been sort of announcements sort of two, three, four, five times a day from us kind of companies telling us about their sort of services and tools that they provide. Uh, for me, I feel like it's been quite overwhelming, the amount of apps that have come through. Sort of, you mentioned sort of I think about three or four contact tracing apps. And for us as a, a publisher, sometimes it's quite hard to keep on top of everything that the, you know is coming out and whether this person, you know, this company, um, you know, are they the same app that's being spoken about, you know, in a, in a few days time, there seems to be a lot of kind of development in this area and especially with contact tracing, but then you also have other aspects of apps. And I think at the moment there feels like, feels like there is a lot of saturation. Um, so uh, for me, I would, you know, I'd like it there if there's a bit more clearance and clear guidance as to who's doing what and, you know, maybe just maybe a bit of filtering, really. I think um, so. It is kind of complicated and confusing because there are tons of apps and um, digital services, and that you know, the tech industry has never been one to kind of miss a chance to jump on a bandwagon. And Jesus, this is the biggest kind of bandwagon, um, and I don't know how long. So there is kind of an amazing array of kind of um, releases that we're getting. Um, coming through ranging from cyber security companies to med device manufacturers, some of whom only have a fairly kind of um, tenuous kind of relationship to COVID-19, others kind of um, have, have much clearer kind of um, propositions. I think the contact tracing stuff, though, is hugely important. And, and my own view is that um, the, the lack of a really clear contact tracing strategy from the very beginning of this pandemic in the UK um, was a massive mistake, and it's something that we're all paying the price for. Um, had some of this technology perhaps been um, already in place and ready to go, um, I think we might have been better able to respond. I think it's clearly going to come into its own as we begin to come into this next phase of loosening up um, the lockdown we're all in, and no one really knows how that's going to work. So our, our indications are that that's when we're likely to see contact tracing um, being linked to the NHS app or integrated within it. Um, and as we try and kind of um, start up the economy again and, and get people kind of back to their kind of um, regular lives. 
Um, but I think you know, in the face of confusion, clearly people are going to the places that they think are, are safest digitally. So NHS.UK, the NHS app, um, and, and the, the uptake on those types of um, trusted um, sources has been amazing. I think NHS app, we did a webinar yesterday where Sarah Wilkinson was updating on that, up to over a million downloads of NHS app, um, NHS UK simply taken off, NHS 111. Um, you know, people are desperate um, for trusted sources of information. And I'm, I'm sure kind of um, services like um, contact tracing to follow. But I think, you know, people trust the NHS as never before. Um, so it's the NHS supported ones or, or officially delivered ones that I think are going to get the most attention. Yeah, I would really hope that that's going to be the most used one in the UK um, and that it's marketed as the you know the go to one because it is from the health service and it would be the most trusted. Because I think it's very overwhelming for us as reporters to be given press release after press release on all of these apps that are coming out. So I can only imagine that as a user that might not necessarily know much about apps or the technology that's available it must just be a bit overwhelming and there's just there's so much choice which I don't think is a bad thing but I would hope that the NHS one is the one that is the go-to and that is you know marketed to them in the right way but we don't know much about it at the moment all we know is that they're working on one um NHSX is trialing it in the north of England at the moment uh, so far, we know that it's being trialled with families in a secure location um, and it will work in the sense that people who have self-diagnosed will be able to put that into the app, which will then send an alert to any other users who have recently been close to that person. Then if that person is then medically diagnosed with coronavirus, the update will be, um, it will go through again and it will be stronger and it will be warning people that have come into contact with them that they need to go into isolation. Um, I believe that they're using Bluetooth to see who has been close to who, but I haven't had that confirmed yet. Um, I have contacted NHSX to ask them for any more information on the pilot, um, you know, when they expect to see it being rolled out further across the UK and what any updates with the app are. Um, but we haven't had anything on that yet. So it's going to be interesting to see how that um, trial goes. I, I think it's potentially going to be fascinating. I mean, I've, I've read some of the stuff from... <clears throat> how these types of apps got used in Wuhan um, and Singapore. And, you know, if, if we're in a situation where, um, you know, the peak of the crisis is abated and uh, beginning to kind of loosen up kind of restrictions on, um, on kind of travel and social distancing and apps which say you can or can't go somewhere or you can or can't kind of leave your home because that, that's what was um, happening in Wuhan. Um, I mean, it raises a whole bunch of questions about kind of civil liberties, um, about use of data. Um, and I think people are willing to kind of um, have that level of direction um, over their lives in the short term. But the government has to be up front, I think, and, and kind of make the case for this. Um, so, you know, the sooner there's, there's kind of clear information on this, the better, I think. If indeed that is the model that's going to be gone for. Yeah, great. And, it's, and, and kind of coming back to what you said, John, about making sure that the NHS is that kind of sole outlet that people can turn to for trusted advice would you say because is there a concern then because there's so many of these apps in the market do you think the message is going to get lost and people are going to struggle to kind of find who to turn to you know to hand hand over their information and their data that's what kind of troubles me 
Yeah, I, I think that that is a concern. Um, I mean, on, on something, a different kind of aspect of um, COVID-19, I was on the radio this morning, um, today being the um, 15th of kind of um, April, that, um, that, you know, prosecutions um, being begun on people fraudulently selling kind of COVID-19 test kits, for instance. Yeah. So I suppose, you know, the, the digital equivalent of kind of snake oil, you know, unfortunately, people are people. And whilst most people responded magnificently during this crisis, yeah, um, there's still shysters out there as well. And some of them are digital. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also wanted to touch on your point about data, John, because um, I think with so many apps out there, there's also so much data that's being collected. Um, and there is obviously a rush to get these apps sorted because we need the apps to trace where the virus is going. Um, and it's, you know, this is unprecedented, it's a time of crisis, but it shouldn't mean that the usual due diligence is glossed over for the sake of getting this app onto the market quickly or for the sake of tracking people a little bit better. Um, the Guardian has run a very interesting piece saying that a draft government memo on the NHS contract tracing app uh, has suggested that ministers might be given the power to order that data be de-anonymized to identify users from their smartphones. It doesn't say why they might want to identify users or what circumstances would that be deemed appropriate. Um, but it still raises some questions about what the NHS's plans with data is. Um, there was also some suggestions that it might use existing apps and functions on phones to track where people are going, like Google Maps, for example, would be used. NHSX has denied those claims and we are chasing them for some more information. But it is still a worrying story and raises quite a few red flags. And I think the first thing that springs to mind is obviously care.data. Um, I don't think we need to delve into that at the moment because we know what happened. But I don't think there's a risk, certainly, that if the NHS is going to go down that path, I don't think we want to end up repeating that and having lost the public's trust in the NHS in this process. Well, I think there's there's a few things there. I mean, I think kind of, you know, extraordinary kind of um, times um, do justify, um, you know, measures and um, approaches that we wouldn't countenance in, in, in kind of usual kind of, um, in our usual kind of lives. And, you know, who would have thought a few months back that we'd be in a situation where, um, you know, usual life has, has effectively gone on hold and um, we're locked into our own homes. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it's not kind of a situation anyone's kind of envisaged. Um, I think, I think so how data um, and, and digital can help, um, help respond to that, um, save lives, make people safer. I think people are going to be easily persuaded um, that um, they should spend their usual kind of approach um, to um, anonymization, privacy, but I still think that our leaders need to kind of be upfront, um, very open about what's being done, the duration and the benefits of doing so. And I think the concern of many kind of um, data privacy um, groups and civil libertarians um, are that those types of powers, those types of kind of um, access to datas, once um, given, are often perceived to not be easily given up once the crisis is over. So, you know, is this just for exceptional circumstances? What comes next? So I think that's why there's been so much um, coverage over the weekend in um, the Palantir um, kind of um, initiative um, and some of the kind of big data um, kind of approaches. Um, 
And, um, you know, you mentioned care.data. It's unfortunate that the kind of, you know, ghosts of initiatives in the past like care.data do resonate at times like this because, um, you know, trust, you need to trust the government, you need to trust its agencies and um, that they haven't always been as, as clear or as transparent um, as they might be. I think that, that, that unfortunately, um, you know, part of the price of that um, is seen when you're in a crisis like this, where people don't just automatically trust the government with its data. I guess I was just going to say sort of about kind of re-emphasising your point, John, about clarity. And, you know, I think why well, I think it's really good that we have our government, government ministers standing up every day doing press briefings, um, you know, to highlight, you know, and answer, sorry, some of the questions, you know, being put forward uh, of the day, you know, things like to do with the economy and, you know, PPE and all these kind of things are addressing them. There has to be this this clarity. And like John said, there has to be it's kind of what the plan is, because now everyone's kind of turning down to uh, what happens after the lockdown lifts. And it's something that I've been thinking about, you know, how do we go back to normal life and how how do they deal with it? And maybe this way, like John said, with the contract tracing apps, it's one way we can maybe go about it because it could give that people that bit of confidence to say, oh, I can go out or, you know, maybe not. I should stay at home. And, and there's other dimensions of that. So, you know, if, if you um, if you have had um, COVID-19 and it, it proves to be the case that that gives you a relatively high degree of immunity, if you've had it once, then they've had um, ideas of, of immunity passports um, included. I mean, so these are forms of digital ID which carry some information about um, your, your kind of um, health history, um, your, your kind of status, that would be an enduring thing because I don't think it's going to be a kind of black and white, you know, we have the day after the COVID-19 crisis. I think this is going to be with us for, for quite some time. Um, and in terms of, um, in terms of you know, the, the extent of data and it's being used, I mean, you know, we're talking about news here. So at the minute, the news agenda is being driven day after day by what is in very kind of simple terms, a piece of health data. What's the number of uh, deaths due to COVID-19 that de- in the past 24 hours um, in hospital? Um, what's the number of new infections? So, you know, th- this highly specialized area that we've been writing about for um, I don't know how long um, is front page news every single day at 5.15 of that kind of press conference where the headline numbers people are waiting for is health data um, in virtual kind of real time. So. You know, this obscure world that we've all been kind of, you know, toying in and kind of writing about for so long is center stage in a way I don't think any of us could have imagined. Yeah, I think it's also very important that we don't put all of our eggs in the basket of a contact tracing app. I think it's very yeah. easy to fall into the into the thought that a contact tracing app will help us solve this crisis. And it is going to be a very useful tool, but it's not going to help solve the whole crisis. Uh, For a start, they rely on people using them properly. And I've seen um, a few experts and professors at universities suggest that there is a risk of people trolling the app. I don't know why you would, but there is a risk that someone is going to download it and think it's hilarious to say, I've got symptoms, everyone needs to go into quarantine. Mm. Um, I would like to have a bit more faith in the human race, but, you know, we've we've seen some interesting stories come out of this. So there's that risk. There's also it relying on people having phones to actually use these apps mm-hmm. and there's a good portion of the population that often get forgotten about in technology older people in particular who don't use this sort of technology so they're not going to use an app um 
there's also the problem with it being like asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people may not put data into the app even though they've got it because they never have symptoms but yet they could have passed it on to someone else um which has been suggested by the team at oxford university who are currently advising nhsx on their app um so there's there's that bit of a loophole where you know you might not be able to trace who has passed it on because they don't have symptoms um but then I, on the flip side i don't want, don't want to be all too cynical um there is there is also a lot of evidence to suggest that they will work. And the team at Oxford have said that our current contact tracing methods are just too slow to keep up with this. So an app is a really good solution for that. I think, as you say, it's a range of things, isn't it? You know, it's diagnostics, it's um, contact tracing, it's social behaviour, um, hopefully um, some sort of vaccine further down the line. Um, but it's not going to be any one thing, but a conjunction of kind of different kind of elements um, that come into it. The, the thing I was going to add is, um, is that back to your point about is it going to be confusing? It already is. Um, so we run a, you know, a specialist kind of trade news um, website. Um, it's to us very obvious. That's what we do. But we are getting dozens and dozens and dozens of members of the public posting comments um, against various stories we've done about COVID-19, um, clearly kind of frustrated um, about their inability to access services, to get through on NHS 111 and reporting their symptoms to us. The, although it's only just you know, a, a, a certain number, um, it, it just gives you a snapshot into the level of anxiety, of stress, of um, fear and concern many people very understandably have um, about um, the impact on them, their families, their loved ones, particularly when they've got a, a pre-existing serious medical condition. And, um, you know, it, it's quite sobering. Hannah's been kind of dealing with them um, and directing them to kind of NHS 111. And, um, you know, if people are confused by something which is so obviously not a, um, a help um, service on COVID-19, then of course they're getting confused by multiple ones out there. Yeah, I guess that brings us back to the point of is too many apps too many apps? I think what's that saying about cooks and broth, something like that? <laughs> like, I, I, <laughs> I think people want to do their bit. And when you, you give them the option to put their symptoms into an app and they know that it's going to help the health system trace where the virus is going, they're going to want to do it. And I think that's great. Um, but what I find really confusing is the point of these apps is to measure how many people have symptoms and how many people might potentially have the virus. But if there are several apps being used to record that, is all of that data going to be accessible in one place for the health authorities and the NHS? Uh, like, you know, for example, if I'm using one app and I go for a walk down the street and I, you know, I'm obviously walking past some of my neighbours and I develop symptoms and I put that into my app, will my neighbour who is using another app automatically get a notification? Because to me, that wouldn't normally happen with the way we use apps so i'm i'm a bit confused it's definitely above my remit of knowledge here as to how this will work with several different apps on the market so on that i think there's so the google and apple announcements this week um i think that goes some way to addressing how these apps will interface with each other um it's actually quite a cool story i've really enjoyed researching this one um so apple and google have essentially join forces to ensure that apps from public health authorities will be working on both iOS and Android. Um, in May, they're going to release a series of APIs that will enable interoperability between both of those devices. 
And then in the coming months, they're going to be enabling a wider Bluetooth-based contact tracing platform that users of their devices can opt into. Um, and that will interact with other apps that they are using potentially to track coronavirus, as well as the government's uh, health authorities. So you know things like the NHS, Public Health England, um, that will be helping them to track the virus. So I think that goes some way to answering the question of how we will gather all the data we need to gather from multiple different apps that are on the market. Well, I think it's good that they're teaming up and obviously helping, like you said, potentially solving some of these problems and this concentration of apps. And I think it's, you know, it's good to see in times of kind of crises and, and you know, the time we're living at the moment that people are teaming up regardless, you know, whether you're Apple, you're Google, you're Amazon and working together to help find a solution or just help a, a, little, a little bit or a, a lot. So I think that's nice to see. Yeah, it really is. I think it's also worth noting uh, that Orca, the app evaluation company, have launched their own COVID-19 uh, app library. And this is for clinicians and people to access. Um, and I think in the era of fake news and data problems and breaches, I think that's a really excellent resource to have. So it, it allows patients or you know users to go on there and they know that the app that they're downloading is clinically verified and has been tested and tried. And it also means that clinicians can go on there and recommend apps and they know that it is safe to recommend to a patient. So I think that is a really useful resource for us to have, given how uncertain everything is at the moment. So do we think that the use of other NHS services, like the, the NHS app in particular, are going to be affected by this crisis and whether it's going to continue to be used a lot? N N NHS app, um, I, we've seen its kind of use um, take off. We had an update on it yesterday um, from Sarah Wilkinson in the latest of our um, digital response to COVID-19 webinars, um, now scheduled through to the end of May. Um, and I think there are over a million downloads um, of NHS app. Um, I think Sarah mentioned that they, they had a mention by the Prime Minister um, in late March and the numbers just went through the ceiling um, overnight. Um, she said it would have been nice to know they were going to get a mention so they could have got some more servers stood up. But, um, but it's part of that, that kind of flight to the, the kind of um, names that you trust. Yeah? I think the NHS clearly, um, you know, um, people hold it in very high regard for all the reasons we know. Um, I think what, what else they're going to connect to NHS apps is going to be very interesting. So is some of this contact tracing going to be um, linked to it? Is immunology kind of um, status um, going to be there? Um, we've seen new flags just been added to summary care record um, on suspected kind of um, COVID-19. Um, I think just this week there's been added. Um, so I think NHS app, um, hugely important. Um, whether it all does it itself or links to other kind of um, elements, um, I think that remains to be seen. We, we simply don't know at this stage. Yeah, so John, just picking up on what you were saying about Sarah Wilkinson and how much response they've had to the app, uh, they did send out some official figures a couple of weeks ago, um, and it shows that use of the NHS app uh, increased 111% in March, which is huge. Uh, so they had 119,512 people registered to use the app in March compared to 56,655 in February. So that's, you know, it's more than double, it's huge. Um, they've also had an increase in the amount of repeat prescriptions being made through the app. I think that's gone up 97%. And the amount of patients viewing their records on the app have risen by 62%. So there's definitely 
been an increase in the use of it. It's just going to be interesting to see if that continues after this is all finished. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have a reason for going there. I think NHS 111, for instance, has absolutely kind of um, gone through the ceiling. Um, you know, the, the kind of figures there are even more kind of, kind of spectacular. But I think I think that question of how how enduring are these um, shifts to digital channels um, and tools that we've seen during this crisis so far, um, how, how kind of enduring they prove to be as the system begins to return to something resembling um, normality. That for me is one of the kind of really interesting questions. So, so we've been running a um, very popular series of um, webinars on digital responses to COVID-19, looking at some of the different dimensions there. Um, I'll give you a few examples. Um, the um, adoption of Microsoft Teams, so a huge shift to collaboration um, tools um, introduced across the whole of the NHS in just a matter of weeks. Probably the, the, the most rapid at scale adoption of a technology platform by the NHS um, ever. Um, same on video consultations in primary care. Um, so th there are very big changes which have been happening, which previously would have taken years and years and years. So we've seen you know, um, that shift to kind of virtual care um, envisaged in the long term plan has happened. The, you know, the long term plan. Said it was going to take five years or something to get up to 30%. Um, there was a stat that really kind of stuck with me um, over the weekend where um, only um, seven out of 100 GP consultations are face to face at the moment. I mean, that, that is just incredible. And so, when, when this crisis abates, is everybody going to shift back to face to face consultations? Will people need to go back to the practice to get their prescription refills? I find that a really interesting kind of area. And, and I think one of the things which is going to be um, really interesting to follow is you're going to have all of those kind of GPs and practice staff and patients who have tried um, digital access to primary care services or telephone access to primary care services, that being the norm. Um, are they all going to want to go back to the old ways afterwards? Um, is it even going to be possible? So I think primary care in particular, um, my guess is it's changed forever and we, we are never going to see a return to the much more traditional model where it's dominated by face to face and you know that scramble for kind of um, getting an appointment on a monday morning um and i think that has far-reaching kind of consequences because if you take the next steps of that which is if you move to kind of um, um virtual and remote care then how do you start empowering the patient through tools that enable them to much better manage their own kind of a health care if you've begun to go that far down that journey, I think the, the, the patient-facing parts of that then logically follow. Why wouldn't you do it if you've gone that far? Yeah, patient-facing stuff is, you know, we talk about that all the time. We know about it. I think something we hear a lot of at digital health is the need for tech that works for the patient. And it does seem like there's so much more of a renewed focus on that now. Um, so yeah, I agree. Maybe once this is all over, we will end up with a health system that is far more connected with its patients, and it might not necessarily be through face-to-face -face appointments. Um, it, I do definitely think this could be a turning point for patient use of NHS technology. I really do. I'd say it's not. I think not so much as a turning point. I think the the point has turned, and I kind of agree with John's point that I don't think things are going to be the same again. And I think 
there will be an increased demand now for digital tools. You know, it's, it's usually seen as like a nice to have or be nice to be able to do a video consultation. But I think it will now change that patients will expect it and expect it to stay and might prefer it. Because I get the impression from kind of some of the kind of webinars we've done that there's they've got more planned on remote care. So kind of um, remote patient monitoring. Um, because if this goes on much longer, I think that will start to get kind of more space and attention than it has done today. Yeah, because definitely. A lot of what's been going on, basically connectivity, homeworking, and a bit of basic remote care. But all the talk of video consultation, most of it's telephone-based anyway. Oh, exactly. Yeah, but I think it's it's made people kind of forced to change the way they work and come up come up with new ways of doing things in, you know, a quicker time than they would have had or maybe would have liked. Well, you know, a line that stuck with me from kind of the webinar yesterday was um, Sarah Wilkinson was saying that for recently retired GPs, I think, you know, haven't been out of the service for long, but are coming back to kind of help um, um, during this um, crisis, they're having to give them kind of um, complete reorientation because there's a whole bunch of systems they never had to use, um, yeah. even a couple of years back, you know. Um, and that idea of, you know, you leave and you come back, say, six months later and you've got to be kind of retrained because everything has moved on. Yeah. Um, you know, th that for me was just a little kind of snapshot of, um, of wow, things really are moving. Yeah? Um, yeah. I also like what she said about the having to retrain people because there were so many NHS, NHS login requests. So they had to retrain people to be login authentic. Oh, to go process all of those yes, logins. Yeah. yeah. It's just they're working at such a quick pace. I think I think you know that old line about kind of never let a crisis go to waste that has some truth in it. Um, there's a window of opportunity in this because things will begin to kind of lock down, and you know people are trying to get as much kind of um, shifted um, now um, as they can because you know that that kind of more bureaucratic, um, more controlled assurance kind of approach will, will return. I mean, it's inevitable. No? Yeah, I definitely think it will return, partly because it has to. There's a reason we don't rush things out in the health system. You know, people's lives are at stake there. But I also think this has changed the way the NHS works forever already. Um, as you said earlier, John, a few months ago, it didn't even look like all of these digital targets set out in the long-term plan were going to be met. And now we're at a point where we're mostly digital for some services, especially primary care, um, and outpatients looks like it's going the same way as well. Uh, so I think one good thing that could come out of this is that we will have a more digitally prepared NHS and patients will be engaging with those tools, which is going to be really helpful in the future. So Hannah and John, thank you so much for joining us on Digital Health Unplugged. And to all of our listeners at home, thank you for tuning in and stay safe. Don't forget, we publish fortnightly on Spotify, iTunes and Apple Podcasts. And you can give us a follow on all of those platforms. Thanks so much for listening.